Last Sunday morning, we looked at Joseph, the story of Joseph, and we looked at how he was sold into slavery and bondage in Egypt and ultimately became the uh, second to Pharaoh because he was faithful to God. You may remember how when he was sold into Egyptian slavery that he uh, was a good slave, learned management skills in Potiphar's household, and uh, then was falsely accused by Potiphar's wife, accused of rape, went to prison when he was about 20 years old, and um, this in Genesis 37, it says he was 17 when he was sold into slavery. He goes down into Egypt and he's there, and then he goes into prison unjustly, and it says that he was 30 years old when he came out. Uh, when he stood before Pharaoh and was actually made second in command. So he was in prison for 10 years. But it says that when he came out, he pronounced good and shalom to Pharaoh and was faithful in slavery, faithful in prison, interpreted dreams, and Pharaoh had a dream that he couldn't interpret, so he heard about Joseph and Joseph came and interpreted Pharaoh's dream for him. Well, how did he end up there? Well, he had um, ten half-brothers. His father's name was Jacob, also called Israel. But he had ten half-brothers, and... Um, uh, they were jealous of him because he was, he, he had this robe, his, he was the youngest and his father was, he was his father's favorite and he gave him a many colored robe and Joseph came out to his older brothers and uh, told them that he had a dream that they would one day bow down before him. And, and here's a little clue. If you have a dream that your brothers and sisters are going to bow down in front of you, I'd keep that to myself. <laughs> That's not a great vision to be sharing. Well, Joseph told his brothers about what he had dreamed, and they hated him even more because they knew he was his daddy's favorite. And so in... Uh, chapter 37, it says they tried to kill him. Um, and they couldn't speak peaceably to him. And they hated him for his dreams and for his words. And chapter 37, verse 18, they came near to, when he came near to them, they conspired to kill him. So they took him and threw him down in this pit. And it was there in this pit that it says in chapter 37, verse 25, while he was down, down in the pit waiting for the slave traders to come by, what did they do? Verse 25, 
they sat down to eat. They had a picnic. Very callous, very hostile, almost celebrating Joseph's demise. Well, the traders come by and they sell him to the Midianites who then sell him to the Egyptians and there he goes into slavery and into prison for the next 13 years. He then interprets Pharaoh's dream and Pharaoh's so impressed, Pharaoh makes him second in command over all of Egypt. And a famine comes to the whole land. And the brothers need food, and they hear, hey, there's a guy down in Egypt who will help us. They have plenty of food in Egypt. So they take a trek caravan down into Egypt. And they don't recognize Joseph, but Joseph recognizes them. And he says to them, I want you to leave. I'll give you food. You can take back to the land of Israel, the land of your father Jacob. But I want you to leave your brother here. And here's where we come to our text this morning. Chapter 42 and verse 21. Chapter 42 and verse 21. Then they said to each other, In truth, We are guilty concerning our brother in that we saw the distress of his soul. Remember that? They were eating. And what was he doing? In that we saw the distress of his soul when he begged us and we did not listen. And so this is why this distress has come upon us. And notice how they connect the two. We saw the distress of his soul. We put him in distress. And now, this distress has come upon us. In fact, the next verse says, Reuben, that's the oldest brother, verse 22, said, Didn't I tell you not to sin against him, but you did not listen? So now now there is a reckoning for his blood. Now there is justice coming to us. We deserve this. This is our, this is judgment day. We sowed the wind and we're now reaping it. We're getting nothing but what we deserve. I warned you about it and now it's come to pass. Well, what I want to share with you this morning, at last Sunday we looked at Joseph and I Uh, We've got CDs. I don't think they're out there, but I'll get those for you if you'd like to get the one on Joseph. But Joseph is the guy that nothing bad is said about him. There's there's no... um, When he's tempted, he resists it. The brothers are contrasted with Joseph. Um, Nothing... Bad is said about him. He's always got an excellent spirit. He's always got a good attitude. He's always rising to the top. By the time he's 30, he's in charge of the world next to Pharaoh. 
But you may not identify with Joseph. You may identify more with the brothers. <laughs> you, <clears throat> as I was looking at this, I, I thought, I, I want to do something on the brothers because these are the guys we are most like. We're, these are the guys who are the losers, the, the big failures. These are the sinners. These are the problem causers. These are the people who cause distress in the lives of others. What, what is the message concerning the brothers? I, I want to I talk about this for a little bit. Now, I want to give you some encouragement, but first let me show you something Joseph does. They come to Joseph in the midst of a famine, and Joseph gives them a test. Actually, there's three stages to it, uh, but very quickly, here's the test. Chapter 42, verse 18 and 19, Joseph said to them, Do this and you will live, for I fear God. If you're honest men, chapter 42, verse 19, let one of your brothers remain here in custody, and the rest of you may go. He wants to know, here's the test, you have a, you're going to have a brother who's in bondage in Egypt. Do you care? <laughs> now look at the next test. Then, verse, and this is in verse 20, he says, And go and get your youngest brother. Now that would be Benjamin, which is Joseph's full brother, but, but because the father had several wives and he was polygamous, um, then some of these were half-brothers. Well, Benjamin and Joseph were half-brothers. So here's the youngest half-brother in their family. You know what Joseph's doing? He's replaying his story. This is the same relationship they had to Joseph. The youngest favorite half-brother of Rachel which was not their mother. And he's putting the same test that they had 13 years ago. So the test is, do you care about your brother? Do you care about the half-brother who's the youngest one? But there's a, a fuller test, and that is, do you care enough that you will... Do you care more about them than yourself? Look at chapter 44, verse 1 and 2. He, when they do come down and bring the youngest brother, he says to his servants, sneak a silver cup into this youngest brother's sack, and so we can, we're going to keep him here. I want to see how they respond. So they do. Uh, chapter 44, he commanded the steward of his house. Chapter 44, verse 1, fill the sacks with food as much as they can carry, and put money in the mouth of the sack and put my cup, the silver cup, verse 2, in the sack of the youngest. That way, see, he can accuse him of stealing, keep him there, and now how are they going to respond to that? And here's how they respond. Look at chapter 44, verse 30. Chapter 44, verse 30. Therefore, as soon as I come to your servant, my father, if the boy is not with us, his life is bound up in the boy's life. 
And as soon as he sees the boy is not with us, he will die. Talking about, this is the brothers talking about their father. If this youngest brother is not with us, my father will die. Your servants will bring down the gray hairs of your servant, our father, with sorrow to the grave. For your servant became a pledge of safety, saying, If I do not bring him back, I will bear the blame before my father all my life. Now, therefore, look at chapter 44, verse 33. Therefore, let your servant remain instead of this boy. The younger brother, the half-brother and son of Rachel, Judah says, let me take his place. Now, when Joseph hears that, you know what he does? He bursts out weeping. And you, the, the, because it talks about chapter 45, verse 1, Joseph couldn't control himself after that. He burst out weeping so that verse 2, chapter 45, verse 2, the Egyptians heard it and the whole palace of the Pharaoh heard it. You could hear him crying and weeping all over the, the palace. Why is he so moved by this? Because he knows they have now made progress. If, this, if they were today like they were 13, uh, if they were 13 years ago like they are today, Joseph would never have been sold into Egypt. They, were, they cared so much about this younger half-brother, they were willing to change places with him. Take me instead. So progress has been made. A conscience has been developed. Now, here's what I want to put before you uh, this morning who may identify with these brothers. You have perhaps. And I, I know I'm not talking to everybody. Not everybody is a big sinner, a big failure with skeletons in the closet. I, and I recognize that. But this is for those who have been big sinners. You've hurt people. You have big failures. And you feel like these brothers, I'm getting what I deserve. This is just. But I want to give you some encouragements today. I have three encouragements for you. This is encouragements for the big sinners in the congregation. <laughs> Can I see your right hand, please? <laughs> Andy, you're the only one that I... <laughs> no, I'm joining Andy. Here's three encouragements for the biggest sinners in the church. Number one, this, is, this first point comes from chapter 42, verse 21, which was our text. They said to one another, in truth, we are guilty concerning our brother. Here's, here's encouragement number one. If I was counseling these three brothers, I would say, okay, first of all, I want you to know it's good that you feel guilt. 
you feel guilty. That is good. Now, I know that that's not like a worldly method of counseling. But I want to tell you that your conscience is like the red light on your dashboard in your car. You need it. It reveals some things that's going on. And here's how they put it. See, instead of sitting down and eating when they cause distress and celebrating and laughing and mocking, now they're saying, in truth, we are guilty. And the distress that we caused is now, we are now due distress if justice is served. They're saying there's a connection between the sin of our past and the suffering of our present. Here's what Paul said about your conscience. He said, there are some people, 1 Timothy 4, 1, the Spirit speaks, speaks expressly and clearly that in the later times some will depart from the faith and devote themselves to deceiving spirits through the insincerity of, a, of liars whose consciences, 1 Timothy 4, 2, whose consciences are seared with a hot iron, like a hot iron. When you put a hot iron on your skin, it just sears it and so that calluses are formed and you don't feel anything there. Paul says that that is a sign of a decayed nation when people's consciences are seared like a hot iron and they call good bad and bad good. They can't distinguish. So the first thing I would say to these men... and. I would say, look, I want you to know this is a good sign. Your conscience is quickened. You, you are now sensitive to wrong and sin and personal failure. So this is good because you are not dead spiritually. You're showing signs of life. Okay, here's another one. If I was counseling these three brothers or these ten brothers, I would say, not only that your conscience shows life, but your progress has become obvious. When they respond in chapter 37 to Joseph there, they laugh. He's a half-brother. We're jealous. We hate him. But when they respond in chapter uh, 44 to Joseph keeping young Benjamin, which is the closest he can get to Joseph if they have. This time they say, oh, let me take his place. Chapter 44, verse 33. Progress has been made. Now, it took 13 years. <laughs> I, I'm not saying that these boys are, are going in leaps and bounds. Have you ever heard this, though? I am not what I ought to be, and I'm not what I want to be, but thank God I'm not what I used to be. <laughs> you ever heard that? I think we can say that about them. And sometimes that's all we can say about ourselves. Hey, I, I'm not what I ought to be. I'm not what I want to be. I'm not what I pray to be. I'm not what people want me to be, but thank God. You should have seen me 10 years ago. 
<laughs> you should have, okay, maybe some of you got to go back further. You should have seen me 20 years ago. <laughs> I mean, I don't know. But the progress was obvious. See, this is Israel. These are the 12 tribes. These, these 12 people are going to become the 12 tribes of Israel going down into Egypt and coming out with Moses. This is the way God's people develop. So their progress was obvious. But here's a third encouragement. It's really quite amazing. If I was counseling these ten brothers, I would say to them, you need to know, God can take your bad and turn it into good. Uh, Here is what Joseph says. Look at Genesis 45 and verse 5. Genesis 45 and verse 5. And now do not be distressed are angry with yourselves because you sold me here. God sent me before you to preserve life. Wait, how did God do that? It was through their sin. God sent me here to make me the ruler of Egypt to save you. (laughs) Look at Genesis 50. Genesis 50, verse 20 and 21. Here's the way Joseph put it to them, because they're still questioning whether they're forgiven. Genesis 50, verse 20. As for you, you meant evil against me. God meant it for good. To bring about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. So do not fear, I will provide for you and your little ones. I'm going to take care of you and your children. I'm in a position to do so. How did you get in that position? I was sold into slavery. Well, who did that? You did. Why would we do that? Because you're a, you were a mean bunch of people. You were a lynch mob. And you violated your conscience and sinned against God and man and sold me into slavery and would have killed me except that you got more money out of slavery. And God took that event and made it the instrument whereby he would then put Joseph on the throne and save them and preserve the entire Israelite future. And so you need to know that God can take the worst event of your past and make it into a good one. Here's, so I jotted this down. I want you to believe today that God is not only so strong as to be able to do such, but also so wise and creative as to be capable of taking your worst evil and turning it into your greatest good. And not only so, 
But God is so kind and so compassionate. He wants to do it and so determined that he will not stop until he has done it. (laughs) Now the proof of this, of course, is in the New Testament. So what is the worst evil in the history of humanity? Would you agree with me when I said that the worst thing that ever happened in humanity among among men was the crucifixion of the Son of God. That's got to be the worst thing that ever happened. And yet, Acts 2.23, Him being delivered by the predetermined counsel and foreknowledge of God, you took and by wicked hands have crucified and slain, but God has raised Him up. That was not a surprise to God. But God had taken it and woven it into the warp of human history so that the greatest evil has become the greatest redemptive story of humanity's history. If He can do that in history, He can do it in your life, which is just a microcosm of a larger history. And not just for the people of Israel, but their individual lives. In chapter, let me just give you this list very quickly. Chapter 45 of Genesis, verse 7, he says that God has done this to keep alive many people. Chapter 47, verse 6, he gave them the land of Goshen when they got down to the land of Egypt. It was Joseph that gave them the best land, chapter 47, verse 11. He provided for their families and their children, chapter 50, verse 21. I will take care of you and your little ones. So so get this now, guys. The worst thing they ever did, the skeleton that was rattling in their closets for 13 years, has now produced provision in the best land, chapter 47, verse 11. It has, it has brought security and food for their little ones, chapter 50 and verse 21. It has brought deliverance to the whole world, chapter 45, verse 7. And that's what God did with their sin. <laughs> oh, man! See... It, is, it comes down to a confidence in God, especially as He's revealed in the gospel. The worst possible news that could come to parents came to Frank and Elizabeth Morris in Hopkinsville, Kentucky. This is back in 1982. Christmas Eve. Their 18-year-old son, this was their only son, just an a, uh, exemplary young man, going to school, just started school, on his way home from work, was killed in a drunk driver accident. Tommy Pagagi, 24 years old, uh, known as the hoodlum in Hopkinsville, Kentucky, 
had a blood alcohol content of three times the legal limit. We swerved over into the path of the Morris's son and hit him head on. And it's not uncommon, but the innocent died and Tommy Pagagi lived. Okay, so who do you identify with there? Are you the innocent, truthful, college-going, uh, only son, greatly loved by the parent? Or are you the Tommy Pagagi? The parents of the boy who was killed was furious. Frank and Elizabeth Morris, everyone sympathized with them because not only had he been in and out of jail before, but he had received a light sentence and they couldn't let it go. He was out on probation. They would follow him, trying to get him in a parole violation, and did. Turned him in and went to jail, went back to jail. They did this for years. Like three years, they would follow him around. Their whole life was consumed in getting back at him. They were Christians. One night, they looked at each other, and they said, you know, I'm empty. This has to stop. I'm filled with hate. And they said, all right, we'll forgive him. We've done this enough. They even went to the jail and asked to see him, and they did. And it was, of course, a tense, awkward uh, conversation, but they said, we want you to know we forgive you. He humbly accepted it, and then they left. They heard about him again as he was giving a a part of his probation was uh, to be involved with with uh, Mothers Against Drunk Driving, so he was giving a story, and they went to hear him, and they actually invited him to their home to eat. He ended up sitting in the seat where their son would sit. They developed this relationship until it just blossomed. This, and this comes from... Um, Bob Russell's book on God's acts, the activity of God in the earth. And he says, Ultimately, as a true crowning grace, Russell says, they adopted him as their own son. (laughs) Oh, wait. Forgiven, adopted, sitting in the place of the son for whom you are responsible. That, my friend, is the gospel. We come to the Father, our hands have the blood of Christ on it. His crucifixion is traced back to our sins. We are responsible. And yet we are forgiven. And Ephesians 1.5 says we are adopted as sons. And Luke 15 says we are seated, seated at the table with the Father along with the presence of the angels. These men said, look, you know what? And here's this 
going back to our text. But they said, we saw the distress of his soul. That's why this distress has come on us. This is judgment. We deserve this. Guess what? In the gospel, you get what you don't deserve. What you deserve is removed and placed on Christ and the burden is lifted and the sins are forgiven and the guilt is removed and you are forgiven, seated at the table and adopted as in the place of that son. What a glorious display of the wisdom and power of God. So that's the gospel that we preach to you. So those are the encouragements. Be glad that your conscience is alive Thank God for the progress that's been made and know that God can take the evil and turn it into good. Now, don't be presumptuous. Don't say, I'm going to go give God a chance to make a lot of good. No, (laughs) that's the danger of it. Nonetheless, that's what Paul dealt with. But the message is still true. The message is still sure. God can take the past, that 13-year-ago evil, and turn it into good.